Judges chapter 17. We've been working through the book of Judges on most Sunday nights here recently, and we're going to be covering this chapter. And I want to begin by just reading through the chapter together. It's just 13 verses, so you can follow along as I read Judges chapter 17, verse number 1. And there was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said unto his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursedst, and spakest of also in mine ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be thou the Lord, my son. And when he had restored the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore I will restore it unto thee. Yet he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took two hundred shekels of silver and gave them to the founder who made thereof a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had an house of gods and made an ephod and a teraphim, and consecrated one of his sons, who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And there was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. And he came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said unto him, Whence comest thou? And he said unto him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said unto him, Dwell with me, and be unto me a father and a priest, and I will give thee ten shekels of silver by the year, and a suit of apparel in thy victuals. So the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man was unto him as one of his sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then said Micah, Now know I that the Lord will do me good, seeing that I have a Levite to my priest. I want to preach a message tonight entitled, God's and a Good Luck Charm. Heavenly Father, as we look at this story from the book of Judges, And we see how far your people had gone drifting away from you and worshiping you as if you were a heathen God. May we be reminded of our tendency to remake you in our own image instead of worshiping you as you truly are and walking in full obedience to your commands. Deliver us from selfish worship. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This story that we find here in Judges chapter 17 would be comical if it wasn't so sad. By way of context, we are not exactly sure when this story took place. It may have been right after the days of Samson, but it's also possible that it could have been uh, at any time during the book of Judges. But it really describes 
what was the attitude of many people in regards to the worship of God in these days of the book of Judges. And in verse number 6, we read the familiar verse. It's the first time it's, it's said here in Judges, but it's, it's uh, the same uh, phrase is used twice that says that there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, if you remember, as we've studied through the book of Judges, we've seen that it records just this vicious cycle over and over again of how the children of Israel turned from worshiping God to worship idols. And because of that, God judged them. And then He would raise up a deliverer to deliver them from the oppression when they repented. But then they would go back into worshiping idols. And there's a couple of places throughout the book that we get a glimpse of what that really looked like for them to be worshiping false gods and to be worshiping idols. And Judges chapter 17 is a little bit of a glimpse of that. So it records for us a story of a, of a real man, a historical figure. He actually lived, and this is actually true. Uh, his name was Micah. Micah was a man who, according to verse number 1, lived in a, a place called Mount Ephraim. And we're going to keep the outline relatively simple tonight. From the first two verses, let's just notice here the story uh, as it involves the stolen shekels of silver. So this man, Micah, we're introduced to him briefly, and then it tells us that um, he came to his mother one day and said, Hey, Mom. I don't know if he said, Hey, Mom. I don't know what the Hebrew for Hebrew, Hey, Mom is, but that was the idea. He came to his mother, and he said, Hey, do you know that 1,100 shekels that was stolen and that you were really mad about? Notice what he said there, that were taken from thee and about which thou cursest. And spake of also in mine ears. Yeah, mom, you, you remember, you remember all that money that, that was stolen? <clears throat> yeah, I took it. it. It's with me. I did it, mom. Now, this was a grown man, by the way. He had his own house, as we'll see in a minute. But he comes to his mother to confess this crime that he had committed of stealing 1,100 shekels of silver. And so he comes and he confesses and his mother says to him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. So in essence, she's thanking him for, for confessing, for fessing up to having stolen the silver. Now, 1,100 shekels was a lot of money. Look down at verse number 10 again. We'll meet this Levite here in a minute. Um, but as, as this Levite comes to Micah's house and Micah offers him a job, he offers him a sum of 10 shekels a year plus food and some clothing. So 10 shekels a year in this story was roughly the equivalent of a year's wage. And he had stolen 1,100 shekels of silver. So this was a lot of money. Now, it's curious that he stole it in the first place. We don't know why. We're not told that. Um, but what we do find very soon, soon after this is the purpose of that money was not a righteous or a godly purpose. Now, let's look again at verses 3 and 4 where we see uh, something about a silver statue in this story. So he, he comes and he restores the money to his mother. He gives the 1,100 shekels back. But notice what his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, who was this lady's son? Micah the main character of this story. So in other words, she's saying, I had dedicated this 1,100 shekels of silver to give to you so that you could take it and make an idol. Now, I want to point out something to you. 
In your Bible, in verse number 3, the, the word Lord is probably written in all capital letters. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that's because the word in the original is the word Jehovah. And so that was the way the translators distinguished which word was being translated from. And so she is using the name of the uh, of, of God, of, of the real God, we could say in, in the context of this story. She's using Jehovah's name, but she's saying that she was going to use all this silver to make a molten image for Jehovah, for the Lord. And so she says, now therefore I will restore it unto thee. So he gives the money to mom. Mom says, actually, this money was dedicated to the Lord. I was going to give it to you so you can make an, an idol out of it. But then verse number four, he says, no, mom, you keep it. So he, so he says, yet he restored the money unto his mother. So he gives the 1100 back. So there's this little bit of exchange, kind of a back and forth, during which the mother says, I wanted to use this money to make an idol, in essence. So he gives the money back. And she takes 200 shekels of it. And from that 200 shekels, which if we do the math based on verse number 10 is 20 years wages, that's a lot of money. She takes that and she uses it to make an idol. It says that she gave them to the founder who made thereof a graven image and a molten image and they were in the house of Micah. Now there's two things that strike me about this. One is just kind of a thought in passing, but it, it is, I think, noteworthy that she had such easy access to someone who was willing to make an idol. So there was somebody in Israel at this time who apparently was making a portion of their living by making idols. That's noteworthy. That tells us a little bit about the culture. You know, Corporate America simply reflects the values of everyday citizens. You know, I, I know we like to blame corporations for pushing certain agendas, but at the end of the day, they're going to push the agendas that they think are going to benefit them. And this is just all inside, uh, this is a rabbit I'm chasing right here, but I just think it's good for us to stop for a second and realize that when you see businesses promoting evil, it's not so much the fault of the people running the business, but the fault of the people doing business with them, the customers and the culture that would make it so that these people feel like they can do this. We see this going on right now. And when you hear in the news about this company and that company that are promoting this certain agenda, you know, I'm glad when we see sometimes there's some pushback, but it's really telling that they feel like they can get away with it in our culture today. The second thing that I want to note, and, very, and much more importantly here, is the irony of worshiping God by making an idol. It, and and, it's, it, and when we think about this through the Ten Commandments, right? One of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not steal. So apparently Micah got convicted about having stolen 1,100 shekels from his mother and came back and said, Mom, I took the money. He was, he was sorry for breaking that commandment. But apparently he was okay with breaking the commandment that says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That was the second commandment. First one is worship God only. Second one, don't make any graven images. But here, 
They're making an image to worship Jehovah. Now, why did God command the Israelites, don't make any graven images? Is it because all forms of statues are evil or depictions of creatures are evil? You know, uh, the Amish in particular, they, they believe that it's sinful if you have a, a portrait painted or something like that. Is that the essence of this command? No, it's something much deeper than that. The reason that God said that we are not to make any graven images is because there is absolutely no way to accurately depict the creator God of the universe with any physical image that we could come up with. And so any kind of an image that we might conjure up to try and represent God inevitably will become a misrepresentation of God. That's why God said don't make graven images. You don't need to make a statue to bow down and, as, and worship it as if you were worshiping the true God. You cannot create an image of God that accurately represents Him, so don't even try. And when we think about that commandment that way, it really puts a lot of things in perspective. Because I'm afraid that many times we are guilty of creating our own graven images of God and worshiping that depiction that we think is God when it's not. Because it's not God as He describes Himself. Hear somebody say, well, my God is not like that. Or I think God is like this. We don't get to pick and choose what God is like. We don't get to decide what God does, why He does it. We don't, get to, we don't get to choose that. God has represented Himself in His Word. He's told us everything that we need to know and everything that He wants us to know about Himself in His Word. And that is sufficient. And anytime we step outside of that, we are worshiping a misrepresentation of God. Now, we can claim that we are worshiping the true God, but if we are not worshiping Him as He describes Himself, we're guilty of worshiping a false God. So there was this back and forth, and finally they kept the money. They had, she kept the money. A portion of it was made into an idol. And then the Bible says that this idol was put in Micah's house. They were in the house of Micah. Now, in verses 5 and 6, it says that the man Micah had an house of gods. Do you notice that? Plural. An house of gods. Hopefully that's a lowercase g in your Bible because there is only one true God. So the third point in our outline tonight is a shameful sanctuary. A shameful sanctuary now we find out a little more backstory here, what's going on. This man, Micah, actually has built his own temple, in essence, a house to house many false gods, lots of idols, and he had set up his own entire system of worship. He had articles for worship, the ephod and the teraphim. He had consecrated one of his sons to be a priest, and he had set up his, his, his own way of worship. Because in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. This was just what people did in the book of Judges. They just said, well, I'm going to do it my way. I, I, don't want to, I don't want just one God, I want a bunch of gods. So I'm going to build me a house, I'm going to put a bunch of gods in it. 
And uh, I don't, I don't want to go to the tabernacle and worship there with the Levitical priests. I'm just going to get one of my sons to be a priest, and we'll just have family worship, and uh, we'll, just, we'll, just, uh, we'll just do it this way. And nothing about this was, was in agreement with the Old Testament law. God had made it very clear how Israel was supposed to worship Him at this time. There was a whole series of sacrifices. There was a whole system that was set up of regular jubilees and feasts and different things that all revolved around the proper worship of God. There were certain people, which we find out later, this man knew about the Levites being the priests, but yet he set up his own son to be a priest, even though God said that nobody else but the Levites were supposed to be priests. God had made it very clear how to worship him, including Worship only one God and don't make any graven images. And this man was doing just about everything the opposite of that. He was living a life of spiritual anarchy. Anarchy is this is what you might describe as lawlessness. It's, it's in every man for himself. No government, no rules. Everybody just does what they think is right for them. And what was going on in Israel was spiritual anarchy. And this man is a prime example of it. He was doing that which was right in his own eyes. The problem with spiritual anarchy is that Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It's amazing to me how convinced some people are that they're right when they're so definitely wrong. You and I know they're wrong because what they're saying and doing does not agree with what God says. And yet they're so sure that they're right and they're, that they should be doing it. They're so sure, like this man was, that this was the best way to operate. It's curious also that he had become a God collector. Got any collectors in here? Is anybody any 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 collectors? Brother Boynton, what do you collect? Everything? <laughs> okay, collect toys. Who's who else is a collector in here? Miss Bachman, what do you collect? Teacups. Can you put coffee in them too? Okay, okay, good. All right. Peggy? Poodles? Oh, the figurines. Okay, okay. Miss Betsy. Music boxes, cool. One more. Yes, DJ? Old hymnals. That's neat. That's neat. So you know, some people in here collect things. You know how it is when you collect stuff. If you're into collecting a certain thing, and you're somewhere and you see one, uh, like uh, you're at an antique shop and you see a nice teacup, you know, that, that interests you. And so you'll go look at it. And if it's something that's interesting and maybe a good value, you might get that and add it to your collection. I'm not going to ask how many teacups you have, but, you know, I know some collectors, they go crazy. You know, they have whole shows on, you know, History Channel and things like that about these collectors and all the things that they have. Some people, they just have thousands and thousands of this one particular item. Well, this guy Micah had become literally a God collector. He had a house of gods. And this whole thing about the shekels of silver and all of that is because his mom was like, hey, I want to I, I give you one to add to your collection. Now, we, we, we think about that, and we think, that's just foolishness. Who would do that? Well, wait a second. I think if we stop and think about it, 
We are surrounded by God collectors in our world today. I know that there aren't a lot of people in America that have literal houses full of literal idols. But we live in a culture where people worship anything and everything other than God. They worship money. They worship fame. They worship pleasure. They worship personalities. They worship this political party. They worship this, that, and the other. They're worshiping all of these kinds of things in a search for satisfaction. And because none of the things that they're worshiping are bringing them true joy, true satisfaction, and Micah had the same problem. We'll see that in a minute. But none of the things they're worshiping are bringing them true satisfaction. So what do they do? They just keep adding to the list. Well, this isn't working, so I'll try this. Pleasure isn't working, so I'll try money. Money's not working, I'll try power. And they just keep adding to the list of things that they worship, searching in vain for something that will be satisfying and fulfilling. But if you are not worshiping the true God and Him alone, you will never find fulfillment in this life. That's why the Lord told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. He is the one and the only. And He ought to be the one and only that we worship as well. So this man had set up this whole sanctuary for all these idols and had all of this paraphernalia for worship and consecrated one of his sons to be his priest. And then we come to verses 7 and 8. We find this young man who I call a solitary sojourner. A young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. Now, the word sojourn means that he's just visiting. It's not a permanent resident. He's just passing through. And he left Bethlehem, Judah, verse number 8. Notice, notice how this young man is described. He left the city of Bethlehem, Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. And he came to Mount Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And at the end of verse number 9, when he meets Micah, Micah asks him where he's from, what he's doing. He says, I go to sojourn where I may find a place. So here is this this young man, and and I can only describe him as aimless. He's, He's just wandering. He's just... He just left to go somewhere. Didn't even have a specific destination in mind. Didn't have a specific reason. He's just wandering and lost. Now he might know where he is on the map. But he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just wandering. And this aimless youth ended up in a bad place. Now, when we get into the next chapter, we're going to find more to this story. But let's just say this guy finds himself in the middle of an uncomfortable situation. And I I want to take a moment just to kind of park here for a second and talk about something I think is very important that this story is an excellent illustration of. One of the biggest problems for young people is when they reach the end of their childhood years and they're transitioning to being adult, having never discovered 
a purpose in life. And by that, I mean God's will for them. One of the biggest reasons that young people leave God, leave church, leave good families is that they just don't have a purpose. They're aimless. They're just wandering. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. And so they just go and they wander. They're searching for something. They don't know what it is. They don't know where it is. They just, they're, they know they're missing something. And so they go looking for it, hoping maybe that they'll stumble across it and find it. Can I remind us all tonight that it is the job of Christian parents and it is the job of the church to help young people discover God's direction for their life to avoid wandering. Psalm 127 and verse 4 says, As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of the youth. The thing about arrows is that they only work properly when they're aimed in the right direction. In order for an arrow to achieve its potential, someone has to help it with its direction. And as our and children are like arrows in the hand of a mighty man. Fathers in particular, we have a responsibility to help our children understand, first of all, that God has a definite purpose for their life and a definite plan, something He wants them to do, His will for them. They need to understand that exists. Number two, we need to help them discover what it is. Now, that doesn't mean that we act as sovereign in their life and tell them God wants you to go here and do this and do that. Up to a point, that's good. But as they are becoming their own sovereign adult, I don't know how else to put it, but in charge of making their own godly decisions, we have to, as fathers, as mothers, as fellow believers, help young people discover God's direction so that they can follow it. There's a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 22 and verse 6. You've heard it before. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Last summer, when we were at the Wilds, they had a breakout session for the sponsors, and uh, evangelist Scott Pauley taught that section, and he talked a lot about dealing with young people, and he used that verse in particular. And he told a story about how when many years before, he had gone on a missions trip down in the Caribbean, and he was talking with a missionary, And the subject of young people straying from the Lord came up. And in the course of that conversation, Proverbs 22, verse 6 was mentioned. And the missionary said to Brother Polly, you know, I think a lot of people misunderstand that verse. Brother Polly said, well, what do you mean by that? And the missionary said, well, let me read that verse to you with a different emphasis. And tell me if you think it makes a difference. And the missionary proceeded to read read the verse this way. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. He said, you see the difference in emphasis there? When we make that verse personal and specific to that child, finding God's way for him, it takes on a whole other meaning. And that really stuck with me. I believe that verse 
is most definitely talking, first of all, about a general direction that every child must be trained to go. Every child must be trained in the truth of the Word of God so that they know the general direction that God wants them to go. Train up a child in the way that he should go. That's in the way of God and the way of God's Word. But more and more, I am seeing the wisdom of a specific application of training up a child not just generically, but specifically to find and follow God's will for their life. I don't have statistics. I don't even know if it's possible to find it out through studying. I can only say for myself, speaking from experience for what I've seen in my life, and maybe you've seen the same thing too. But it sure seems to me, based on what I've seen over the years, that young people who by the time they were 16, 17, or 18 years old, had a definite idea of what God wanted them to do with their life, fared so much better than young people who graduated high school and had no plan, had no idea what they were going to do, who were just aimless and wandering. This was this young man, this young Levite. He had no direction. He was just sojourning. He's just wandering around, didn't know what he was looking for, what he was going to do. And he stumbles into this man's house by the name of Micah. And he finds himself in a strange situation. Verses 9 and 10. Micah said to him, Whence comest thou? He said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. Micah said unto him, Dwell with me. Be unto me a father and a priest. And I will give thee ten shekels of silver and a suit of apparel and thy victuals. So the Levite went in. Let me ask you, what qualifications did this young man have to be a priest of any kind? The only one that we know of is that he was a Levite. The family he was born into. That's all we know. And apparently that was all that Micah cared about. Hey, you're a Levite. Great. Why don't you come be a priest for me? Was this a young man of good character? Did he have a solid knowledge in the Word of God? Was he capable of teaching it? Was he capable of leading other people in the worship of God properly? Obviously not, because he accepted a job working for a man who collected idols. And so he offers him this job. And so the Levite went in. What did he offer him? Ten shekels of silver, food, and clothing, and a house, shelter over his head. But notice also what he said, Be unto me a father and a priest. I'll just sum it up this way. He offered him a paycheck and prominence. And so the guy took it. I wish it were not true, but sadly it is that there are a lot of men in ministry today that they're only in it for a paycheck and prominence. You take one or both away and they wouldn't do it. If a man is truly called by God to serve in full-time ministry, the paycheck and the prominence won't matter. He will do it because that's what God's called him to do. This man takes this job because let's just be honest, it was going to be easy money for him. It was going to be easy money. 
have a place to stay, food to eat, have some spending money. And it was just this family, this household, maybe some servants involved, but I mean, you know, maybe once a week I'll have a little idol worship service. What did that look like anyway? I don't, I, I literally, I don't even understand. Like, how does this work? What do you do? You just go down and say, okay, we'll worship this one today and this one today. I, it's bizarre. It makes no sense to me. But for him, it was an easy living. So he took the job and he finds himself in a strange and what will later become a very dangerous situation. But I want to close with these last three verses here with what I call the sinful scheme. The Levite was content to dwell with the man, verse 11, and the young man was unto him as one of his sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then said Micah, Now I know that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. First of all, notice right away, it doesn't exactly work out like Micah proposed or said it would. He said, I'll make you a father and a priest. But then in verse 11, it says he became as one of his sons. Not quite the same place of prominence he was promised. But verse number 13 is the most telling because it reveals Micah's true intent. He said, now I know that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. I've never been one for good luck charms. I hope you aren't either. I will walk under a ladder. I'm not afraid if I break a mirror, except if my wife finds out. That might not be good. If a black cat runs across my path, that's okay. I own one. She does it all the time. I don't carry a rabbit's foot. And the only times I've ever looked for a four-leaf clover was just out of sheer curiosity. But this man Micah had an idea. And the idea was if I have a Levite, a genuine, honest-to-goodness Levite as my priest, well, then God will do me good. He viewed this man as a good luck charm. What, I mean, how else can you describe it? He didn't say, I have a Levite as my priest. Now I'm doing what God said to do. Now I'm closer to full obedience to God. No, that wasn't his attitude. His attitude was, things are going to go a lot better for me now. God's going to have to do something good for me because... I've got me a Levite. Again, it reminds me of the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when they were fighting the Philistines. And uh, you remember the story there? They were fighting against the Philistines and they weren't doing so good. And so in 1 Samuel 4 verse number 3, the people were coming to the camp. The elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. And so you know what they did? They went and got the ark and they came down. And initially the Philistines were very, very afraid. Oh no, the ark's here. But then they said, listen guys, we can do this. We can, we can still beat them. And they went and they attacked the Israelites and the Israelites were horribly defeated and the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Israelites thought that the, that the Ark of the Covenant was like a good luck charm. 
Hey, if we just bring the ark down here, it will save us. It will deliver us. We'll have victory because it is here. And Micah was no different. Hey, God's going to do me good because I've got a Levite now. He wasn't interested in heart obedience. He wanted God to do him some good. He was treating God like the mythical genie in a bottle that exists just to grant us our wishes. And lest we be too quick to judge Micah, are we not sometimes guilty of that same attitude toward God? That we think that He exists just to give us what we want, just to make us happy and just do the things that we want Him to do? Are we not sometimes guilty of having that shallow of a view of God? Many people only want a God that will do them good as they define good. See, here's the thing. The Bible says that God is good and doeth good. Everything that God does is good. It's just that His definition of good and my definition of good don't always line up. I know that from personal experience, but more importantly, Scripture tells us that. For instance, Psalm 119 verse 71, the psalmist said, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. I don't know about you, but the last time I was afflicted, my first thought was like, boy, this was good. No, I think of affliction and good things, and they're not in the same category. I have a different definition. Paul had to learn this too as he was praying for that thorn in the flesh that God would take it away. God ultimately said, no, I'm not going to take it away. Instead, my grace is sufficient for thee. And that's finally when Paul came to the point when he said, most gladly, therefore, would I rather glory in my infirmities. The power of Christ may rest upon me. He had to learn that his definition of good, which originally it was, God take this thorn away, that definition had to change from take the thorn away to keep the thorn and enjoy God's grace. And our problem is many times we want a God who will do us good as we define it. But when God's definition of good is different, we struggle with that. Is God really what He says He is? Because He did something and it doesn't look very good to me. How is it that we're so quick to question God and so slow to question ourselves? Why is it that we're... Are, it's so easy for us to doubt God, but yet so easy for us to trust our own misguided understanding. This man had a view of God, that God was someone who could be appeased like a heathen God, who could be worshipped like a heathen God, and that if you did that properly, then like a heathen God, He would do a whole bunch of good things for you. That is why people worship false gods. It's because they want those gods to do stuff for them. And let me say, if, you, if the only reason that you worship God is because you want God to do stuff for you, you're worshiping God for the wrong reason. We worship Him for who He is. That's it. We worship Him because He deserves it by nature of the fact that He is the eternal Creator God of the universe and the Redeemer of our soul. He deserves our worship, and He deserves to be worshipped as He instructs us to worship. We don't get to make up our own way of worship and say, well, I feel like I should do it this way, and it's okay if I do that way. And When it doesn't line up with Scripture, we must worship God for the right reason and in the right way.
Many times God does not act like you want Him to act. How do you respond when that happens? Some people just go find another God. Well, this God didn't do what I wanted, so let me go get a different one over here. And maybe it's not literally looking for a different God, but we, sh- we, we, we search for different understandings of God, if I can put it that way. Well, God didn't do what I thought He was going to do here, so let me go find another understanding, another explanation, another version of God that I like better. They shop for a version of God that they like, and then they follow that. But it's not the true God. We must worship the true God. And here's one thing that we just, we just need to get settled and okay with. The true God is a God that is beyond our understanding. He is not always going to do everything the way that you think or even in the way that you understand why He's doing it like He's doing it. Isaiah 55 says that the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You do not want a God that you can fully understand. You don't. Because if you could completely understand God, that means God is no better than you. The fact that He is so much greater than us means that we cannot fully understand Him and that should be a comfort. Because if it was up to you and me to figure everything out and to fix everything and solve all the problems, we'd be in a miserable place. God is one Lord. And we must worship Him and Him alone. Not in our own way, but in His way. And so this young man becomes priest in this man Micah's house. He sets up shop and Lord willing, we'll pick up in chapter 18 at another time. But as we close, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. And I want to close by reminding us all that we don't need to shop for a Levite to be our priest to appease God, to get something good out of Him. Because God has already sent the perfect priest, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 4.14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Because we have such a wonderful, loving, caring, perfect priest in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should hold fast, hang on to our profession of faith, be steadfast in doing what is right and in following the Word of God and in worshiping God as He instructs us to. Because the truth of the matter is, you and I cannot please God in and of ourselves. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And were it not for Jesus Christ coming and living a perfect life and dying in our place, we could never 
satisfy God. But praise the Lord that in Jesus Christ, we are sanctified, we are justified, we are redeemed. And so God looks at us now, not with a frown of disapproval, but with a smile because we are His children in Christ. But as many as believed Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. We don't need gods. We don't need good luck charms. All we need is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, what a joyous truth it is to know that Christ dwells in us by faith. That we don't have to earn your favor or your forgiveness because we never could. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we've treated you like a good luck charm or like a genie in a bottle or we've created a version of you in our own mind and worshiped that instead of worshiping you and as you have revealed yourself to us. May we submit ourselves to your word and our understanding to the Holy Spirit's working in our life. Lord, give us a better understanding of you and help us to live more like Christ every single day. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to take a moment to challenge you tonight about what kind of, what version of God you've been worshiping. Have you created a false image in your own mind and in your own heart of God? False because it's based on what you think, not on what God says? It's easy for us to slip into that. We need to be careful that we worship God for who He says He is and how He says we ought to worship Him.